Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, June 29th. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We've got a whole bunch of different things to talk about this week. One of them, following up from last week, we're going to continue talking about the Senate health care bill, which ran into some roadblocks this week. Planned votes were canceled after a congressional budget office score showing 22 million people, projecting 22 million people would lose health insurance coverage over 10 years as a result of this bill. So uh, the bill was getting criticized by some conservatives. It was getting criticized by some moderates. And now... Uh, Republican senators are going back to the drawing board a little bit. We're also going to take this opportunity in the final week of June to look back over the first six months of the year, this first stretch of the Trump administration, what's happened, what hasn't happened, how the new president is doing. Not so new anymore, I guess. And uh, we've got a special guest this week. Josh Gerstein, uh, Politico's uh, Supreme Court expert, is going to be here to talk to us about what happened at the end of the Supreme Court's term, importantly, what to look forward to at the beginning of their next term, a lot of key arguments on tap, and what's going on with the new Justice Neil Gorsuch and uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who about whom retirement uh, rumors have swirled for the past few months. A couple quick housekeeping notes before we get going. Uh, remember, you can email us your questions if you have them at nerdcast at politico.com. And please remember to rate us, uh, subscribe, and write written reviews if you have time uh, of the Nerdcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We love getting your feedback. It helps us make the Nerdcast better. So please uh, rate us, review us, any feedback you you have on, on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. All right, let's bring in the Nerdcast panel. We have senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Hey, Scott. National political reporter Eliana Johnson. Hello. And senior reporter Nancy Cook. Hello. All right. Our first data point this week, 22 million. That was the projected increase in the number of uninsured people contained in the analysis of the Senate GOP health care plan on Monday by the Congressional Budget Office. And by Tuesday, the first votes on the plan had been delayed. So, Nancy, where does the health care fight go from here? We just talked last week about this Senate bill, long-awaited Senate bill being unveiled. What are Republicans going to try to do with that bill to garner more support from moderates and conservatives going forward? Not an open-ended question at all. <laughs> where do we go from here? <laughs> On a major policy issue. Um, well, I would say that you know the, the vote was really delayed just because there weren't simply the votes there. And there's sort of two things at play. One, uh, the Senate bill as it stands now, it doesn't appeal to moderates and it doesn't appeal to conservatives. And so there's conservatives who are mad that it keeps in place some structures of the Affordable Care Act and it doesn't totally get rid of them. It doesn't just absolutely repeal um, Um, Obamacare, which is what they want. And then there's moderates who are mad, uh, who feel like it goes too far 
in uh, rolling back the Medicaid expansion that happened in their states. Um, it would, you know, cut some funding from opioid. It would change the structure of Medicaid. And so, you know, for people who are more moderate, like Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, where opioid addiction has been a major issue, that's a real concern. Um, Susan Collins is among them, uh, Lisa Murkowski. And so basically, Mitch McConnell has this bill that kind of doesn't appeal to the far right, doesn't appeal to the moderates. And it's a major problem to get everyone on the same page. Eliana, how did things unravel this week? I mean, first we saw some of the conservatives jump ship and then Senator Dean Heller from Nevada uh, declared his very forceful opposition to this. And, thing, and, and then things really went off the rails after that, it seemed like. Well, I don't think things were ever raveled on this bill <laughs> in, the, in the first place. Um, you know, McConnell uh, wrote the bill essentially behind closed doors with a uh, few of his top aides and unveiled it. And it was very clear from the outset that he didn't have the 50 votes. It, the bill didn't have the 50 votes it would need to pass the Senate. So he was going to have to negotiate um, either with the senators who opposed it on the right, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, and Ron Johnson, um, and or with um, the senators who opposed it from the left, like um, – like Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins and uh, and Dean Heller. And when he canceled the vote after saying pretty forcefully that he wanted to have it before the July 4th recess, these negotiations hadn't even begun. And so there wasn't a point at which uh, McConnell ever had enough votes to pass this bill. And he hadn't even begun negotiating with these senators. Mike Pence was set to dine with some of these conservative senators, uh, Ben Sass, and Mike Lee, uh, Jim Langford, from Oklahoma among them, I, I believe last night, this is Thursday, so it was Wednesday night, and the vote was canceled before that Pence dinner ever took place. So it, it's not like this was off to a promising start or negotiations ever got underway. That So it's not clear to me exactly where these negotiations, negotiations are going to take place, except for the fact that I don't see how McConnell gets to 50 votes without the conservatives. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult to bring uh, Dean Heller and Susan Collins on board and maybe Rand Paul. But it seems to me like it would be tremendously difficult to put the puzzle together without Ted Cruz, Mike Lee and Ron Johnson. It seems like one of the things that Republicans have going for them as they try to push uh, put this puzzle together is that there are so few Republican senators up for re-election in 2018. I think there's only eight of them. But one of them is Heller. And remarkably, we saw the, the nonprofit backing President Trump attack Heller with TV ads. Now with strong leadership and a real chance to repeal and replace Obamacare with patient-centered care that protects American families, Senator Dean Heller is saying no. They pulled them down. Uh, soon after putting them up on Tuesday. But the, they went after one of their party's own senators who's a key piece of their their slim 52-seat majority in, in the Senate. Right, Charlie? Yeah, it was a pretty amazing act of political retaliation. And it might even be unprecedented. I certainly can't ever think of an example where a president's political arm went in, not only went after uh, one of the president's party, but also the single most vulnerable incumbent in the president's party. So, you know, the mere act of... Uh, America first going after Heller was pretty stunning. But I think it speaks to a larger sense of frustration and exasperation uh, among Republicans about uh, the Trump administration and its approach to uh, safeguarding and expanding the Republican majority. Because it's easy to forget that this cycle is completely primed for 
big Republican gains because despite the political environment that we, you know, that people are familiar with, uh, the numbers, when you just look at the cycle itself, the numbers are in Republicans' favor because a third of the Senate is up the way it's always up in the election cycle. Two thirds of the seats that are up are Democrats. So Democrats are, are defending many more seats and they're defending many more seats in harder to defend areas, meaning there's lots of red state Democrats that are running, swing state Democrats that are running, whereas Republicans have very little exposure in 2018. They really only have two seats that right now look like they're going to be uh, a problem to defend. One of them is Heller. And so, you know, Republicans were expecting such big things out of this cycle, yet they feel like the White House, through its impulsiveness or its chaos, is really undermining them. And Heller is the perfect example of that. He's the poster child of the lack of discipline in the White House and the frustration that many Republicans feel uh, about that operation. Yeah, this is the in in 1938, Franklin Roosevelt went on a big tour of the South and was attacking members of the Democratic Party, Dixiecrats, who were you know who were voting against the New Deal agenda and was trying to run primary challengers against them. It didn't work, but like between now and then, there are really not very many examples of sitting presidents going after members of their own party. Uh, in, you know, in in the political. In the political sphere, there have been arguments about policy. President Obama certainly disagreed on policy with members of the House Democrats and uh, Senate Democrats while he was uh, while he was president. But there was never this uh, uh, this naked political effort at such a critical time. It was pointless too, because you know even uh, Mitch McConnell was said to have privately been fuming over this in part because he thought it wasn't productive. If you if you wanted to maybe th- if you wanted to get Heller to switch his his, his uh, vote, you know, any possibility that he was going to do that is probably thrown out the window by attacking him so harshly. And I think the White House really felt the la- the backlash as a result of that. Lots of uh, senators weighed in when they had that uh, when they went to the White House to talk to the president the other day. Uh, Heller himself weighed in on that, and it just goes to show that there's. You know, just not a real sophisticated grasp of how modern electoral politics works. Uh, And, you know, it also goes to show a certain amount of impulsiveness from the president's political operation and a a kind of pettiness in some ways. Because keep in mind that Heller and Flake, who are the two most vulnerable Republican senators, are the ones who definitely got on uh, Donald Trump's. Uh, bad list during the campaign because there are said to be some bad blood toward, towards Heller because they felt that Heller maybe threw them under the bus during the Access Hollywood episode and something similar happened with Jeff Flake who certainly uh, was not a loyalist by any stretch of the imagination and there's also uh, lots of bad blood towards Jeff Flake. So, you know, you're putting your personal vendettas uh, in front of what your party needs, and I think the idea that he is the party figurehead is still, or, uh, is, is still alien to Donald Trump. So, Jeff, Jeff Flake was definitely out there during the election season decrying Donald Trump. Dean Heller is not exactly a high-profile Republican senator, and the fact that he is among the most vulnerable uh, incumbents up for re-election and Republicans can lose two votes, it simply doesn't make sense. It seems like Heller is one of the votes they can lose. I, I It boggled my mind that the president's outside group would think it's worth uh, putting – spending seven figures in, in attack ads uh, targeting Heller, whose vote seems unswayable and who is not exactly a familiar name or household name to many people. 
I mean, on the one hand, I guess you are sending a pretty powerful message, to, you know, about what happens if you cross the White House. So if it was an exercise in message sending, uh, it's effective in that sense. But still, ultimately, when you balance everything, you know, the way Eliana says, like, what is gained from that? Mm-hmm. And, and especially, I mean, this is not a state that Donald Trump won also, Nevada. And so it's the you, you could envision a scenario. Obviously, Heller needs the Republican base and then some in order to win reelection in that state. But it's frankly, it's not the worst thing in the world with his constituents, with his with his governor, who's not not a particularly pro-Trump governor to to be <laughs> to be in the crosshairs of the White House here. Which is exactly why he's voting against this bill. <laughs> right. So, Nancy, what what happens next? Uh, Dan Diamond, who was on with us last week, uh, had in the the political Pulse newsletter this morning. There's um, talk of adding billions and billions of dollars in funding to fight opioid abuse to this bill as one of the avenues to try and attract to try and cobble together fifty Republican votes on this. And so um, he was writing forty five billion at least for opioid response um, that could appeal to senators like Portman, who we just mentioned. They're trying to hash out at least an agreement in principle, potentially, before they go on recess or maybe during the recess next week. Uh, what else should we be on the lookout for in terms of changes to this to this bill? Well, I think that's one of the major things. And I think that they really, you know, I don't know if they'll necessarily be able to come up with some sort of agreement, but I think they want a skeletal agreement to at least say that they can take something home. Um, you know, I think other things that could potentially be on the table would be, you know, can you appeal to uh, more conservative members by more deeply slashing into the structure of Obamacare? Uh, you know, can you give states more waivers to sort of change that? Um, so I think those are all things. But I think Republicans are under the gun to show that they can get this done. And the further they push this, uh, you know, out, the more this cuts into their time to do things like tax reform, because as we've talked about before, they're really, you know, healthcare went first because they need the money, the savings from that that they would get through uh, Medicaid cuts to help fund tax reform. So in in March, we watched Donald Trump declare the Republican push to pass new health care laws dead. The House had uh, just pulled a vote on on a bill that they had decided couldn't pass. And then six weeks later, the House passes a bill. So are we like what wh- what do you think the prospects are? Are we watching the same movie over again where it's dead until it's not? And then at, at some point, something will pass? I mean, potentially, because uh, the House managed to pull it together. But I would say, you know, there have been some things that have happened since then that, you know, Trump was instrumental in helping sort of bring the House vote along. Since then, I would say he's done things to piss off Mitch McConnell and the Senate. And I feel like if it gets pulled together or if the Senate bill gets resurrected and sort of saved, it's probably going to be without Trump's help because, you know, he went behind – you know, the House members backs and told the senators not to pass a mean bill a few weeks ago when the senators came, like the House did. You know, this whole attack on Heller sort of sets a different tone and is a different demarcation. And I think that there's a feeling in the White House like, oh, we'll have Pence handle health care just because I feel like the Senate is, you know, less open to his help. So I feel like if it does get pulled together, it will be much more on the weight of Mitch McConnell and the Senate than having to do with Trump. And isn't it also true, Nancy, you can tell me if this theory is total bull, but it also strikes me that the Senate is by its nature going to be much more independent and assertive towards um, 
towards the president, not just because of institutional prerogatives, but for political ones, meaning their constituencies are a lot different. You can't mm-hmm. roll them where the house that in the house people will line up behind the president because they they represent very concentrated constituencies, very conservative places in 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 many cases. But when it comes to the Senate, you've got people like Portman, you've got people like Heller, you've got lots of members, Collins, almost all of them sit in seats that are far more diverse. They're far more broad based. Uh, they have uh, different range of needs and demands and their political constituencies are statewide they're not narrow and so they can't so easily bow to the dictates of of what the president wants on this bill well i think that's part of it and i also just feel like there's a lot of people in the senate who have served there for a long time and they feel like they have a lot of institutional knowledge and that it's its own separate functioning branch of the government and they're not necessarily going to be you know swayed by the president all right well let's shift from that what the administration hopes will become its signature accomplishment of of 2017, if they can get things together in the Senate, if they can, and then after that, if they can cobble together a uh, an agreement between the House and the Senate on the differences in their bills. Let's move from there on what's happened so far. Our second data point today is the number 41, and that's the number of public laws enacted this year by President Trump and the Republican-controlled Congress as we hit this weekend the halfway mark of 2017. So, Charlie. Let's let's start with another open-ended question for uh, to to begin the segment. Let's step back, look at the big picture, and make a grand pronouncement for us. How is the first <laughs> half of 2017 gone for this new administration? I guess it depends on <laughs> how you define the word success. Um, you know, the, the president obviously extols uh, the virtues of his early months at every opportunity. He's and, still in office. Yeah, that's true. That's an accomplishment. But also, I mean, you know, they talk about uh, everything they've been able to achieve in a small amount of time. It's historic or unprecedented. I mean, I think at a broad level, it's been a very faltering start uh, marked by incredible di- uh, divisiveness within the White House itself and inability to take advantage of the Republican majorities, uh, you know, a level of institutional chaos in the way uh, they're they're running the show there uh, out of the Oval Office. They've been slow on appointments. They have uh, for their inability to be disciplined has led to uh, an incredible number of distractions from the legislative agenda. They haven't been able to to really focus on anything uh, because of uh, unforced errors, you know, um, and then there's the polarization. I mean, obviously, they walked into a polarizing environment, but now it's probably 100 times more polarized. And uh, I think that much of that is laid on uh, laid at the doorstep of the White House. If they, you know, he talked occasionally about working with Democrats before he took office, certainly in the interim between the election and his swearing in. But everything he's done has suggested otherwise by uh, constantly tweeting at Hillary Clinton, point, sort of pointlessly tweeting at her, uh, taking on Barack Obama, uh, you know, uh, making fun of uh, Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren. So, you know, that's not going to get any better. I think if you were to talk to them, you know, they, they would uh, talk about their accomplishments as being, um, you know, making a dent in the regulatory state. Uh, but, you know, I, I, the only accomplishments that I see, or at least the, the most obvious ones, are uh, political accomplishments, meaning he has solidified the base to a certain degree. Eight out of 10 Republicans think he's doing a pretty good job. Uh, we haven't seen that uh, erode that much, despite some of the scandals that have uh, occupied the media. I think uh, he... They haven't lost a seat in the special elections, um, and, and, and maybe we expected they would do that. He's locked down social conservatives and evangelicals. I think they would point to passing the health bill in the House. But, you know, again, so much of what they've accomplished is 
is transitory and fleeting. Uh, You know, they haven't passed uh, significant substantive legislation. And so, you know, by all of those measures, you know, by those yardsticks, I don't think that it's been a tremendous success so far. Well, I think, you know, the biggest success uh, in my mind was picking Neil Gorsuch um, to be the Supreme Court justice. And, you know, Trump wasn't even really that involved in that initially. You know, that list of judges was selected by other people and given to him. Uh, You know, the White House. He did sign off on selecting a list, um, which I think was it it was a minor stroke of political genius because it, it really served to reassure uh, conservatives, many of whom voted him for him precisely for that reason. But he didn't come up with that list no. himself. It was, you know, Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society and Don McGahn, the White House's top lawyer, you know, interviewed a small handful of them. And so I, I feel like that was a huge success. And having that conservative Supreme Court justice will have ramifications beyond Donald Trump's presidency. But in my mind, that's sort of the main thing. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that so much of his agenda has been stymied by these self-inflicted wounds. Like he decided to fire Comey, you know, which brought about all of this political ramifications. You know, even this morning, it's Thursday morning, you know, the Senate is trying to cobble together a health care agreement. You know, behind the scenes, the White House is trying to figure out what to do on this trade policy. And meanwhile, President Trump is tweeting about what, uh, you know, Mika on Morning Joe, whether or not she came to Mar-a-Lago and had a facelift. I mean, he just constantly steps on things. I have to say, I think foreign policy has been an area of relative success. There hasn't Hmm. been an enormous crisis, but it's an area in which I think um, Trump's unpredictability and, uh, you know, recklessness in in some ways has served to bring some sort of stability and – hasn't hasn't been extraordinarily damaging um and his his cabinet picks in in um in that area the defense secretary jim mattis secretary of state rex tillerson we have a story today about how tillerson is extremely frustrated um but despite that i think they're pretty widely perceived as as solid picks um it's it's a it's an area of normalization i would say but isn't it also fair to say that he really? I feel like he really hasn't been tested no. uh, by uh, a, a major incident, uh, international incident, you know, and that is to come. You know, maybe it's Syria, maybe it's Iran. It could uh, easily be North Korea. North Korea. Something is going to come up, and and I have to say, you know, when you look at some of their responses so far, uh, you know, and and the impulsiveness and the recklessness on certain fronts, less so on foreign policy front than domestic policy. But I don't think that that's raised a, a high degree of confidence in in what they will do when they do get that big test. I part of me wonders the extent to which his his unpredictability works um, for for an actor like North Korea. Um, I don't know, but I do I do wonder. What would what would each of you identify as the 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 biggest thing that's gone wrong so far? We've kind of talked through some of some of the successes. Gorsuch, uh, chief among them, House Health Care Bill. Some of the regulatory undoings. I mean, the I and we've also talked through some of some of the the negative sides. But the in turn, the biggest obstacle that that has come up with the Trump administration so far for for me it would be it would it would be firing the FBI director and everything that stemmed from that the appointment of the special prosecutor the continued buzz of Russia related allegations. 
I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, but I think everything stems from the same uh, place, which is uh, the to me the fatal flaw is the lack of humility. I think uh, many people thought that maybe the the majesty uh, of the nation and the enormity of the job ahead of him and the office would somehow change him, change his approach. He would do his homework. He would act with a little more dignity. Uh, he would uh, maybe set a different kind of course, and he absolutely hasn't. He's proven that nothing will change, and he doesn't really have an iota of humility. It's worked very well for him in in the business world and he's not going to change and because of that all of these problems have stemmed from that uh the the recklessness the chaos the the impulsiveness and that incl- and, and and that is that explains comey that explains every you could trace every scandal in that administration to that same wellspring i don't think this white house has an agenda and i think everything that most everything that they do is reacting to events and that's just not a way to leave with many accomplishments or to get to really to get anything done uh, the second thing i would say is that um i think that they had to depart from precedent um in order to get things accomplished in really waiving um the requirement that you not have viciously criticize the president, the presidential candidate in order to staff the government, because the vast majority of competent people had criticized this president. And it's very difficult to accomplish uh, big things if your agencies aren't staffed. And the agencies are not staffed right now. It's not just the Defense Department or the State Department. But um, I think if they don't, if they don't uh, ease up on that, um, this is not going to be an administration that leaves with much. That said, if you don't have an agenda um, and you're not pushing things out to the agencies, it doesn't really matter. Nancy? Yeah, I would give like a inside Washington, I feel like firing the FBI director and everything that has followed that it will ultimately be the biggest deal. Um, but I think outside of Washington, the biggest problem will be uh, Trump's sort of inability to govern. And as Eliana said, just the lack of agenda and the fact that there isn't this major policy uh, packages that are passing like healthcare or tax reform or infrastructure, whatever, I think will ultimately hurt him. And I think uh, Eliana's point is is a really important one and one to think about because you can't do big things if you don't have the, the personnel to do it uh, or if you don't have the discipline to do it as an enterprise. But you also can't do big things if you don't dream big things, if you don't believe big things. And as far as I can tell, the only person that I really see a real clarity of vision, whether you uh, believe it uh, or, or I mean, whether you respect it or not, is the person with the clarity of vision in the White House is Steve Bannon. He believes something. Uh, I don't know – that you know, I see a whole lot of consistency in terms of a, a, a vision or an agenda elsewhere in that White House. Uh, I think the big things that come from Trump are big reactions. And that's what drives everything out of the White House. That's a great point. In December, we can uh, l- look back. Maybe we'll listen back to this episode and see, see how the next six months stacked up against what our, our first impressions were. All right, we're doing something a little different this week for our third segment. The data point is the number 70, and that is the number of cases that the Supreme Court, uh, that is the number of opinions that the Supreme Court uh, decided during this term that just ended this week. And here to talk about it, we have uh, Josh Gerstein, Politico's senior reporter and Supreme Court wizard. Hey, how are you? Thanks for being here, Josh. Hey, happy to be here. Josh, is this your first time on Derek Hest? 
I don't think so. But in recent, in recent, in the recent edition, the recent version of Nerdcast, I don't I, think you're ever wrong with me. I'm, I'm surprised to see you walk in without an entourage. I thought you always traveled with <laughs> minions carrying your papers as a senior uh, reporter. My um, security details in the lobby, the lower <laughs> lobby. <laughs> uh, so, Josh. Walk us through how the full-strength Supreme Court finished off its term this week. There were a few big decisions, but in general, this wasn't the most uh, big-ticket term that the Supreme Court has had in recent years. Uh, It it was not the largest uh, number of really significant decisions. It seemed like uh, after the passing of uh, Antonin Scalia in uh, February 2016, rather unexpectedly, uh, the court kind of went into slow motion. I'm not sure that was the only reason that they um, shied away from some fairly significant cases. But um, the general feeling was that they were biding time. Uh, we saw a series of cases that were essentially um, dropped on a, a, a 4-4 uh, basis, including some pretty significant ones like uh, the President Obama's immigration, you know, action, uh, things along those lines, where the court couldn't really reach uh, a consensus, and then into the, that continued into this term uh, because the vacancy remained open as a result of the uh, Senate Republicans' gambit uh, with Merrick Garland, uh, and so uh, we've basically had a term, I would say, a term, almost a term and a half, where the court has been. Um, you know, dodging some of the more high-profile cases. Of course, that all uh, changed with the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch in April. And so the court is sort of, we think now, perhaps ready to wrestle with some of those things again. What are some of the big issues that are coming up on on the docket? The It's seemed usually at the at the end of june we see these big decisions getting handed down it seemed this week that the biggest news was the the cases that the supreme court decided to hear when they come back right so uh we, we didn't see the not the series of really uh critical or high profile decisions uh the most significant one that i think people are watching for the coming uh, year is called the master masterpiece bake shop case uh, out of Colorado. And uh, it has to do with religious rights and uh, gay marriage. It's sort of a follow-on to the Supreme Court's recent rulings um, on gay marriage, including the big one saying that states had an obligation to recognize same-sex marriage. When that decision came out, a number of the conservative justices said, look, we're going to see a wave of cases about the rights of uh, religious Americans who are concerned about either gay marriage or other practices uh, about their rights to not get involved in these sorts of things. And lo and behold, we have this case out of Colorado involving somebody who makes cakes, who was asked to make a cake for a same-sex wedding and refused. It's really quite a fascinating case because it sounds like it's completely about discrimination, but the way it's being framed to go in front of the court is really more about the First Amendment and artistry. I don't know if that's like um, an entirely – a straightforward framing of the case or more of a strategic one. But to me, that's the most fascinating um, aspect of it. So, Josh, can you explain the artistry aspect? That's That sounds so, interesting. So the, the to me, the really, really fascinating part of this case is it's really not a straight-up business case. Like if it were a straight-up business case, like that the, the people having this – um, same-sex wedding, wanted to buy two sacks of flour or two sacks of rice for this guy, it would be pretty straightforward that 
they have to sell that stuff. You know, it's been established in this country now for 50 years or so since the civil rights movement that private businesses can't refuse to do business with someone on account of their race. We've seen the court you know, to a degree, basically sweep that kind of protection into other categories. It's not totally in for, for sexual orientation, but it's more or less headed that way. And so if it's framed as a business case, it's very hard to make the case that this guy uh, has the right to refuse to sell something to the, these folks. But if you look at a fancy cake, like a wedding cake or, or what, what have you, as a piece of artwork, all of a sudden, the case becomes a lot more complicated. Like, can you force an individual to perform an artistic work or to write a book or to write a poem just because that's the way they make money? Uh, because, you know, they, if the, in a situation where they don't feel comfortable um, crafting the expression that's involved. And so, again, there's somewhat of a strategic approach in, in framing the case that way um, that perhaps is intended to make it appeal more to people like Justice Kennedy or, or other moderate justices that may be more protective of free speech rights than of necessarily religious uh, freedom rights, although uh, he, he has gone along with that in other contexts. So that's what I think is fascinating about the case. Do the justices buy that there's an artistic component in this or do they view uh, wedding cakes or whatever you want to call them as uh, a commodity in trade where it's What's almost that, impossible uh, to make What's wedding cake sh- or that cake? Oh, well, if they've ever seen Cake Boss, Cake come Boss, on. <laughs> come on, they know this is art. This is high art. <laughs> this is high art. Serious business. Um, a few other of the cases on tap. We've got they've uh, they're going to hear arguments about the Trump administration's travel ban. Um, they're going to hear one particularly interesting for the political junkies out there. They're going to hear a case out of Wisconsin about partisan gerrymandering. Um, and you know the the court has held on a number of uh, occasions that gerrymandering by race is not acceptable, but they've never, they've kind of spoken out against partisan gerrymandering, you know, specifically by party, but never really identified uh, what what one might do about it. And now this case out of Wisconsin is kind of aiming to do that. Right. And the court has said before that some of the tools used in different states to fight partisan gerrymandering are constitutional. They've said, I think, in Arizona and California has similar kinds of commissions that are designed to combat this problem of legislators and their parties just um, setting up districts that guarantee them essentially life tenure if they can draw the lines uh, correctly. Uh, But you're right, Scott, that in the past decisions, the court has said there might be a case where the drawing of lines were so – was so outrageously partisan uh, that it would be unconstitutional and it's Justice Kennedy in particular who has suggested that. Uh, So for him to uh, take up this case out of Wisconsin or the court more broadly to take up this case will really test that to see is – do, the, do enough of the justices agree that partisan gerrymandering can be unconstitutional? And what's the standard? I think the reluctance of the court to go into that in the past has been almost all you know, decisions about redistricting have a political component to them. How on earth are you supposed to figure out um, if that component is so significant? Is it more than 50 percent, more than 80 percent? Is it overriding? And then that's the point at which it becomes unconstitutional. And th- those are the issues the court's going to hash out when they take up that case. And that reluctance was based on more than anything else, common sense. I mean, if you look back to, you know, Justice Frankfurter's uh, uh, dissent, on, what was it, Baker versus Carr, 50, 60 years ago, he was warning about the dangers of wading into the political thicket of redistricting. And, you know, obviously, you know, the cases around gerrymandering around race was, uh, to me, a proper 
uh, venue or proper uh, course for the court to, to look at. But partisan gerrymandering, I mean, come on, this is politics. It's not as though this hasn't been happening since the beginning of time. And there's no resolution here. There's no end to this. Uh, and, and this idea that, oh, well, we'll pursue, you know, that some states have come up with more successful solutions to it. That's also a fallacy. Like even the states that have come up with a work around around redistricting still invariably find that politics has tainted the process. And so, you know, from my perspective, I, I really wonder about this kind of expansive idea that the court has to get involved in partisan gerrymandering. It's just impossible to extricate the politics from an inherently political act. And to me, that's almost the bridge too far, the idea of partisan gerrymandering. It'll it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, a lot of Democratic redistricting groups, especially, are very stoked about about this case and and what might happen to it. Because the the results could be far reaching, but it also could end up being yet another one of these cases that the Supreme Court decides doesn't meet the hypothetical threshold that they've they've said could exist for them to decide that parties and gerrymandering could be could be unconstitutional. Right. And there's also the question of, as Charlie was alluding to, when you talk about race in this context, can you really completely separate the issue of race from the issue of party? Um, when you talk about states where uh, voting is very racially polarized, which is a lot of a lot of states in this country, and you know, you look at some of the numbers on who votes from which uh, groups vote for which parties, um, of course, people that want to do it on the basis of race are going to assert that they're doing it on the basis of party. And I'm, I think that's another issue you're going to see brought up at the high court. I'd actually like to see more politicians on the high court. I think the court would be more reluctant to get involved in a case like partisan gerrymandering and uh, if it had more elected officials on it. I mean, that used to be pretty commonplace. Uh, Charlie wants to see Justice Ted Cruz. No, I, uh, I don't, not, no, I don't want to see Justice Ted Cruz. But I mean, think about it. It's, it's only been since probably the Reagan era, era that we stopped putting politicians on the high court. Sandra, uh, Day, Sandra Day O'Connor was, was probably the last. She was a state legislator. I think Potter Stewart was probably a, uh, he was a Cincinnati city councilman. But before that, you had a mayor of Detroit on the court. You had ex-senators. And I think it gave a sense, a different kind of equilibrium, a sense of balance. And, uh, the, you know, and it gave uh, a different kind of feel and outlook to the court than it has today when it's simply made up of law professors and corporate lawyers. Eliana, I, I want to bring up, we're talking about a lot of stuff that's happened on the Supreme Court, but one of maybe the bigger stories this week is also something that didn't happen. And uh, you wrote Eliana, a story. Eliana, let's talk about something you know anything about. <laughs> well, you, well you, you wrote a story about uh, uh, the, the week has passed. Anthony Kennedy has not announced his retirement as as a number of people were expecting him to do, preserving the court at its, at its current balance, at least for now. Well, I think a number of people, meaning like uh, – White House counsel Don McGahn and who had convinced the president basically that Anthony Kennedy was going to retire. But I think a lot of people uh, genuinely had no idea what he was going to do. Um, and uh, Kennedy did a great job, I think, um, keeping his deliberations pretty confidential. And the people who close to him, I think, you know, speculated that even he didn't really know what he was going to do until the last minute, but he decided to stay on the bench. Somebody um, at the White House said to me, it's possible he wanted to serve a term or two with his former clerk, Neil Gorsuch, and uh, and see how that went. But it seems unlikely now that he'll retire next year, which is an election year. And so um, it maybe it will be looking at a retirement in 2019 or 2021, but uh, not anytime soon. And as Eliana wrote about, there's been a very 
uh, deliberate campaign by the White House and its legal allies in the conservative world to make Kennedy feel as comfortable as possible with the idea of retiring. I think they were concerned when Trump first came in. I'm probably, with good reason, remain concerned that Kennedy, who's a very buttoned-down, mellow, um, kind of old-school, you know, Republican, but definitely of a of a more centrist character and a less uh, bombastic character than Trump, certainly, to make him feel comfortable that the Trump presidency um, was not going to be some kind of crazy, out of control endeavor. That I'm he sure would... he feels totally comfortable. Right. With that well, idea now, you know, so. it's not a totally like, successful fine. effort. Yeah. I, they don't have a number of the elements critical to making that case are completely outside their control. But <laughs> that said, um, to be sure, uh, that that said, that said, they wanted to to make him feel comfortable. Indeed, the very selection of Neil Gorsuch, a right. former clerk of Justice Kennedy was clearly intended and officials said it was intended to make him feel that, look, Trump's not going to appoint wackos, out of control uh, folks onto the court. And so you, you shouldn't feel that things are going to be um, crazy if you step aside. Um, it doesn't look like that prevailed at the moment. And, and it is a somewhat cynical effort because Kennedy's a very smart man and he has to realize that whoever Trump puts onto the court um, is going to result in a very dramatic change in jurisprudence and possibly the erosion, if not the overruling, of a bunch of cases on abortion, maybe on gay rights, um, and in other areas where Kennedy has you know, been sort of holding the fort there. And he has to know that as well. And the big mystery is you know, how much does he weigh those factors about his legacy um, versus his desire uh, as an 80-year-old turning 81-year-old man um, to maybe do something else for the, for the remaining years of his life. Really quickly, uh, before we wrap up here, what what has Neil Gorsuch been up to for his his for a few months on the court? Uh, you know, obviously he's he's not in uh, the public eye right now the same way he was during his confirmation, but he's been very very busy and active. So he ha- has not been quiet in these couple months. He 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 was very vocal in the first case that uh, or cases that came up in front of the court in April. He didn't have that many chances to sit with the court in argument because he only got on in mid-April and late April is the end of the court's um, argument session. But there were a lot of decisions um, in the last few days that he uh, jumped onto. He disagreed with his colleague's decision to pass up a McCain-Feingold uh, case, uh, uh, agreed with Thomas on that one, dissented uh, from a ruling on same-sex couples' rights regarding their uh, birth certificates. Uh, he took a stand in this uh, Trinity Lutheran case in favor of churches and religious groups' ability to get public subsidies that are being handed out uh, broadly. And on the travel ban uh, matter you mentioned earlier, he signed this three-justice opinion saying the whole travel ban should be allowed to take effect right away. And I went up to the Hill to talk to some senators this week about how they felt about this, both on the liberal and conservative side. And the liberals said that, you know, Gorsuch did a good job of obscuring his record during confirmation hearings, as many others have done. Uh, but Diane Feinstein said to me, we've got, it looks like we've got another Scalia on our hands. And that seems to be the sentiment among Democratic senators. The Republicans I spoke to were delighted, thought he was doing a great job and wished him a long and healthy life on the court. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Thank you for that update, Josh. That was, that was excellent. Sure. Happy to be back on NerdCast after many years in the wilderness. <laughs> and uh, Charlie, thank you as always. Thanks for having me. And Eliana, thank you as always. Thanks for letting me make such major contributions to this last <laughs> segment. And thank you to our listeners. 
once again, remember, if you have questions for us, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. And as always, please remember to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews if you have time on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. So uh, once again, a thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our researcher and Politico web producer, Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you again next week.